a uh, Washington Post journalist by the name of Gene Weingarten won the Pulitzer Prize a number of years ago. He won it for an article that he wrote entitled Pearls Before Breakfast. <laughs> um, it was about a busker uh, playing a violin at the top of the escalator outside the L'Enfant uh, station in uh, Plaza in Washington, D.C. Now, unknown to those that came by him, um, there was a video camera that was hidden, set up to record the event, and as the busker played uh, some of the most inspiring classical music ever written, the commuters just, <laughs> they just walked on by, and um, by and large, they completely ignored him. The violinist, his name was Joshua Bell, one of the most famous violinists in all of the world. And the violin that he was playing there in that D.C. subway station was a Stradivarius, which was built, had been built in 1713 by Antonio Stradivaria. It was that, that violin happened to be one of the, uh, a combination of some of the finest spruce and, and maple and willow, and it was built to such perfection, they say, that um, if you shaved off a millimeter of wood anywhere off of that violin, it would have unbalanced the sound. That violin had been purchased for a reported three and a half million dollars. <laughs> now, Joshua Bell normally plays in great concert halls, you know, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Vienna, Prague, um, London, Paris, New York, Toronto. People pay a lot of money to go hear him play, in fact. He earns up to $1,000 a minute for his actual playing. <laughs> On this particular morning, he walked to the exit of the L'Enfant uh, Plaza station and he positioned himself um, against a wall next to a trash can. He wore just simple uh, jeans, long sleeve t-shirt, a baseball cap. He removed his violin from its case and, and opened it and threw a, uh, some change in it to encourage uh, donations. And then he began to play. Every time a train pulled into the station, um, people streamed out of that subway. Joshua Bell played there in that station for 47 minutes. Over a thousand people passed him by. Hardly anyone Stopped to listen. 27 people was recorded uh, putting money into his violin ca case. It came out to, after 47 minutes of playing, uh, came out to $31.21. <laughs> Only one person recognized him. The Washington Post placed a few reporters around the exit and they uh, stopped some of, of those uh, people coming out and, and they Asked, said, hey, we're, we're doing an article on commuting. Um, could we get your telephone number? We'd love to call you later in the day and ask you a few questions. They called them and they asked him if they'd seen anything unusual at that station in the morning. Most of them couldn't remember anything. Uh, um, some of them um, mentioned the busker. When the journalist told the people they were talking to that this was Joshua Bell, one of the most famous violinists in the world, playing a Stradivarius that cost three and a half million dollars. <laughs> they were astounded. 
And the Washington Post mused about this in a very interesting article. They discussed the following question. If a great musician plays great music, but no one hears, is he any good? <laughs> no one expected a famous violinist to be playing a $3.5 million violin at that time in the morning at the exit of a train station there in D.C. I mean, they didn't expect him, so they didn't recognize him. So they didn't hear him. I mean, who can blame them, really, right? I mean, who would ever expect to see a master violinist performing in such a dirty, undignified place, right? Do you realize that's exactly what God did when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth? God's son came as that little baby born to that young Jewish couple into a world that did not expect him. And he went to the cross and he died for us while we were yet sinners because the world did not recognize him. And it was in that unexpected, unrecognized rescue plan of God where God, amazingly enough, displayed his power. I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look at God's rescue plan for each one of us and how he displayed his power through that rescue plan. Now you get to Ephesians chapter 1. I got to tell you, Ephesians chapter 1, the first chapter, you can kind of uh, divide it up into two sections. There is the blessing, which is basically verses 1 through verse 14. And then there's the prayer, which is verses 15 through 23. At the center of both, the blessing and the prayer is the person of Jesus Christ. Um, in the blessing, the Apostle Paul says, God has blessed us in Christ, and he predestined us through Jesus Christ, and made known to us his plans, which he purposed in Christ. And all this will take place under one head, who is Christ. That's all in that blessing section. <laughs> and then in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul moves into his prayer, and again, his focus, it remains on the person of Jesus Christ. He tells these believers that he is praying for them that they might know God's great power. How? By looking at what Jesus Christ has done. Paul prays that God might enlighten them so that they may know. Look with me, starting in verse 19. They may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. <laughs> Paul's prayer, Paul's prayer here is that you and I, we might know God's great power. We might experience it. We might see it. We might understand it. And God's power, he tells us, was put on display in three successive events. Why don't you see this? Three successive events. Event number one is Jesus' resurrection. Look with me at verse 20. Look what he says here. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Um, God's power was demonstrated when God raised Jesus from the dead. Death is a, uh, a bitter and relentless enemy. Have you discovered that? Realize that? I mean, it'll come to all of us one day, right? No matter how wealthy you are, no matter you know, how well-educated you might be, no matter how many buildings you might have named after you, everyone will die. In literature, there's a story that's told of a number of different ways. It's a story of a man who opens a newspaper and discovers that the date on the newspaper is six months in advance of the time that he lives. He turns the pages and and reads stories about events that have not yet happened. He turns the sports page and finds outcome of of games um, that uh, have not yet been played. He he turns and quickly to the financial pages and runs his fingers nervously up and down the list of stocks, reading which stocks go up and which stocks go down, and he realizes that this information, man, he's holding a a treasure chest. This information can make him millions of dollars. He can become a wealthy man. But then he carelessly turns over to the obituary section, and he sees his own picture and a story about him. See, there's a wisdom, I think, in understanding that we're all um, dust, and to dust we will one day invariably return. No human power can prevent it, nor does anyone have the power to bring the dead person back to life, except, right, except for God. God has done something that no man can do. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's his power demonstrated. First of all, he arrested the natural process of decay, refusing to allow his son to see corruption. And then he not only reversed that process, restoring Jesus to his life, but he transcended it. He raised Jesus to a completely new life, immortal and glorious and and free A life that nobody had ever experienced before and nobody has ever experienced since. Anyway, not yet. (laughs) That empty tomb on Easter Sunday and Jesus' resurrection appearances were were the evidence. (laughs) God's power had been put on public display on that day. That's event number one. Event number two, Paul tells us, is Jesus' enthronement over evil. Look again with me at verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God seated Jesus at his right hand, a place of supreme honor and executive authority. It was a fulfillment of of Psalm 110, verse 1. It said, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. See, God's footstool consists of 
His enemies, those principalities and powers, those spiritual forces of evil and and powers of darkness in this world, those forces which could conceivably uh, challenge Christ for supremacy. (laughs) But now, but now, Christ has been raised to the right hand of the Father. Now those forces have been defeated. (laughs) So although mankind has fallen, and you and I, we... We can't overcome evil. God can. God has. God in Christ has declared in victory and conquered evil, and therefore, he can rescue you and I from it. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ is presently interceding for us at God's right hand. What a powerful image. The one who died for us is sitting and pleading before God. It's not just an image, it's a reality. He's sitting and pleading before God on our behalf for our forgiveness. Um, Let me try to kind of make sense of this. Imagine you're in prison, right? And you're the best lawyer possible. In fact, you've, you've really developed a good friendship with your lawyer and, and love to have her come by your cell and to uh, uh, talk to you. You love to have her come and just have a conversation with you. She encourages you, and she's a person of great compassion. You find her presence comforting, and, and all that is great. But, of course, what you need most from your attorney is not necessarily comfort in the cell. What you need most is an effective advocate in the courtroom, right? I mean, the same is true for us. Our greatest need is not necessarily comfort on this earth, although (laughs) that's wonderful. And God gives us that. But our greatest need is a defense in heaven. I need a representative who will speak to the Father on my behalf, an advocate to plead my case. And when Christ ascended into heaven and went to, the, went to that place, to the right hand of the Father, he went to where we need him the most. <laughs> John explains, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Event number three was Jesus' enthronement over evil. That showed God's great power put God's power on display. Event number three, God's power put on display in Jesus' appointment as head over everything. Look with me at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. I want you to see two truths here, okay? First, God placed all things under Christ's feet. Again, that's a reference to Psalm 110 and the footstool, right? And then second, God appointed Jesus' head over everything. Do you notice two times in this verse we're told the extent of Jesus' headship? He says, all things under his feet and head over all things. Jesus' headship includes um, all things, not only the material world, but also the uh, Uh, especially all beings, uh, the good and evil, uh, demonic and uh, angelic. The universe and all that is in it are under Christ's rule. He's the head over everything. (laughs) 
three events, right? Catch that. Three events that Paul lists here that demonstrate God's power. So then what we do, we need to ask a follow-up question. And the question is simply, why has God done all of this? Well, look with me at the last three words. You know, I kind of left it off there as I read verse 22. Look with me. 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things, what? To the church. That's what the ESV has. I like the NIV's translation. It says, for the church. Or to the benefit of the church. <laughs> now, insert that into the passage, starting back in verse 19. Look what it says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things, what? For the church. Those three words, for the church, govern all of those mighty acts of God in those verses. It was for the church. God raised Jesus, catch this, for the church. God seated Jesus at, at his right hand for the church. God placed all things under Jesus' feet for the church. God appointed Jesus head over everything for the church. I know that in many communities, Christians are considered to be insignificant. And the church is oftentimes ridiculed. I mean, you read about it all the time in, in popular news, newspapers or, or, or blogs online, you know. The future of the church, they say, is weakening and it's in decline increasingly. You know, you hear these stories of, of church buildings that are, that are emptying each week and you, and you hear about church leaders begging and pleading people to, to stay. But I want to tell you that's not the truth. Here's the truth. God has not only organized the whole universe to establish his plan of making the church, but he has eternally purposed that his son should die and be raised from the dead to achieve his plan for the church. Before the foundation of the world, God launched his amazing rescue plan for the benefit of the church. As one person has reminded us, we are not the church of Chicken Little, <laughs> but the church of Jesus Christ. We don't run around screaming, the sky is falling. There's no panic in heaven. See, over the chaos of the world reigns the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, who sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father and has been pointed head over everything. God did all of that for the church. And I got to tell you, when we understand that as the church, and we believe that as the church, there's some powerful implications for us as the church. Let me give you three of them. Number one, God has chosen to operate through the church. 
Now, last week, we looked in our series here, Better Together, we, we looked at that passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and we discovered how the whole body, including the head, works together. But here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives us a different, a slightly different picture of the church. He says that Christ is the head, and you and I, we, the church, we are the body. Look again with me at verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, listen, which is his body. The church is the body, and Christ is the head. <laughs> There's no such thing in the New Testament as a Christless church, friends. No such thing. Let's think of the analogy of the body and the head for a moment. The whole body, think about it, is directed by the head out uh, through the, the central nervous system. Um, the head acts through um, the body. The body itself derives life from the head. Without the head, the body is lifeless. I mean, think about what happens when you pick up a pin, okay? Um, let's say you, you, you're going to pick up a pin. So uh, you pick up the pin. Uh, the direction to pick up the pin, it, it comes from the head, right? The desire of the head is to communicate through the body. The members of the, uh, of the body, they, they collaborate to fulfill the command. And the arm stretches out. The fingers gather. The, the thumb presses against the fingers uh, in order to form a grip. And the arm lifts it up and pin is ready to write. <laughs> right? That's how it all works. The head acts through the body. See, by describing himself as the head, and the church as the body, Christ is telling us that he has chosen to operate through us, the church. Since Christ is committed to work through the church, here's a question for you. Why wouldn't we do the same? Since Christ is building the church, isn't that what we should be doing? Since Christ loves the church, shouldn't we love her too? Why wouldn't we want to be doing what our Lord and Savior and King is doing? <laughs> Implication number two. God has chosen not only to operate through the church, but also display his glory through the church. Again, think of Christ, the head, and the church, the body. Why does our glorious head, think about this, join himself to such a feeble body? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, I mean, messed up many times, out of sync many times, feeble, us, us. Isn't it amazing, don't you think, that he would do that? Display his glory, to choose to display his glory in us, together, the church? See, God displays the glorious spectrum of his wisdom in the gathered congregation of believers. In fact, in Ephesians 3.10, Paul writes, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be shown. How is God's wisdom made known? It's through us. Isn't that amazing? The, the church is through us. So let me ask you again, why, why would you not want to be part of that? 
Why would you not want to belong to the body of Christ, to serve the, the body of Christ, to give to the body of Christ, to live and die for the body of Christ? There is no greater privilege for a believer in this world. <laughs> Listen, one day every member of the body will be glorified with the head. One day the scarred body of the church, the body is so often been feeble and weak, the body so despised and hated and persecuted by this world will be taken into the very presence of God. And that scarred body will become like his glorious body. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory right now. And the body known by its scars will be known by its glory. I think one day we'll all say, I'm so glad I am part of the body of Christ. <laughs> Let me give you a third implication. Third implication is that the church is a community of power so we can live confidently. Let me explain. Um, the, the power that we have as believers does not come from ourselves, okay? Let me make sure that's clear. It doesn't come from us, but the power comes from God, defined by the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. In fact, look back with me again at verse 19. Louis says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? <laughs> because no other power can rival Jesus, and because in him the fullness of God lives, and because we are his people, those that belong to him, the church, we don't have to look elsewhere to find what we need for this life. What we need is in Christ. God's power has invaded this present evil age in the resurrection of Christ, and it is for us. <laughs> it is the power described in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Paul says, it, 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 it doesn't remove us from persecution or, or danger or difficulty or death, but makes us more than conquerors in all of those situations. It's not a power that works magic. It's not a power that enables us to escape all those difficulties that come our way, but a, it's, it, it's a power, rather, to live in an evil world. It's the power for godly living. That's the power that God gives us. God's power is also the power of the gospel. You know, I know it can at times feel from time to time that as Christians we have nothing much to offer this world. I mean, we don't feel very big or powerful, influential, you know, here in our city, first free. Uh, we're a small church in South Minneapolis. We don't feel all that powerful. But see, the hope that we bring has very little to do with our position or our influence. I got to tell you that. The hope we bring is not through our strength, but rather through God's. Even when we feel like we have nothing to offer, <laughs> we have Jesus to offer. That gives us the reason to believe that we have to offer, what we have to offer is, is more than enough. 
The message of Jesus Christ is the only power on planet Earth that can change the composition of a human heart. And because God has entrusted his message to the church, the local church is the hope of the world, friends. God launched his amazing rescue plan for the church. Why would you not want to be part of that? Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Think of that. Nothing will crush or defeat, overthrow, or conquer, or eliminate the church. <laughs> Nothing. Not pandemics or viruses. Their church will remain even into eternity. And let me remind you, the church is you. The people who have been redeemed by Jesus, a unique, unconquerable body of believers. The church bands together and lives together and loves together and faces challenges together. We are better together. <laughs> whether we're in the same room or whether we are watching online, our connection is Christ and he holds us together. God launches amazing rescue plan for us, for the church, and he invites you and me to be part of what he is doing. He invites you and me to help build his church. So let me just say, when Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you, <laughs> um, I have a critical role for you to play in helping me build my church. I need you. I, I need your time. I need your talents. I need your treasure. Will you help me? I hope and pray that your answer is yes. Because there's nothing more rewarding than helping Christ build his church. Let's pray. God, thank you for the church. I would never have come up with that plan. I would have thrown that option right, first thing, right off the bat. But God, you didn't. In your wisdom, God, you want to display your glory. You want to operate through the church. And God, you give us the power to share the message that changes hearts and lives. Might we be the church, your church, here at 52nd Chicago and South Minneapolis. God, might we share that message with our community, with our neighbors, with our family members, with our friends, coworkers. God, remind us that the church is the hope of the world because you are working your plan through us. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.